Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, possibly for the last time for me, I might die. Uh, I've got coronavirus right now. My name is Gabrielle Hakoen. Uh, and I'm here for possibly the last time ever in my life with my BFF and co-host, Sadie Carpenter. Hi, I'm Sadie. I do not have do not have COVID. Um, I feel extremely bad for Gavi. If you die, yeah. I will never forgive you. Oh, that's the way you're going with that? Yes. Okay. You'll never forgive me for what? For how for- dare you die? Like I just I just suffered significant loss in my life. You're going to allow me oh. to suffer the loss of my best friend and podcast host too? That seems that's extremely true. selfish of you. Yeah, you know, honestly, it would be selfish of me to take my presence away from all of you wonderful beautiful people and ascend to a higher plane of existence. Uh so do you think you can consider maybe living through this? I'll do my best. Okay. I'll, I'll do honestly, I'll do my best. But yeah, we, we are we are here today. We are on this podcast. Uh, Sadie, what are we talking about today? Well, I was just going to ask you if um, being super sick maybe has you feeling a little burnt out. You know, I'm, thank you for asking me that. Um, I do feel maybe a little bit burnt out, although, you know, I think just that's the the lack of energy that I have from this horrible disease that has claimed the lives of so many. Um, I mean, who knows how much time I have left. Uh, and <laughs> like I, I did spend all of yesterday editing the uh, the episode about uh, Christian nationalism, and that was deeply harrowing. Um, so I, I feel deeply burnt out. 
Um, but I show up to work anyway, like a good uh, fundy and 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 a good. Uh, well, I was I was going to say that I I can certainly empathize with you feeling ill and burnt out because we just recently did some episodes where we talked about my day in the life as a fundy person and what that was like for me. We talked about my relentless daily schedule when I was in high school and when I was in college. We talked about the responsibilities that I had. They really started ramping up around the time I was 12, but I started really working the way I was describing in those episodes when I was around 14, and it continued until I was 20. Wow. I started to feel burnout around 16 or 17 when... One of the the signs looking back that now I realize, oh, that was a sign that I was extremely burnt out, was that when, when school was out for the summer, people would encourage me to get a summer job to save money for college. And I just felt so overwhelmed by that idea. I felt like there was no way I could physically or emotionally handle it. I would sit down and try to do job applications and just be overwhelmed with anxiety and felt like I could not. It was just too much work to even do a job application, much less seriously pursue getting a job. I wanted to do things that I enjoyed over the summer. At the time, I was very into writing. I wanted to write a novel. And even trying to do things that I loved doing were unmanageable. I would go through days in like a constant state of stress and pushing myself. Every day was just, I have to make it through this hour and then the next hour and then the next hour and then I can sleep. Always just desperately trying to rest, always looking for the next nap. I never felt like I was refreshed when I woke up. And when I look back on that experience, it's very clear, oh, that's burnout. (laughs) Like, yes, that that is how you feel when you're experiencing burnout. Do the fundies have a word for that? Or no, <laughs> that that's that was um, just what I thought was normal. I think that this experience of looking back and realizing, oh, that's burnout, is is probably pretty common to cult survivors, but especially for people who are really sold out or really all in during their teenage or young adult years. Today, I want to talk about some of the long-term consequences of the life that I lived during those years, I want to talk about more how I dealt with the fallout and things that have helped me work through that. So that's going to be a great uh, topic for today's episode. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, (coughs) there are a few things that you can do. Um, You can join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored versions of most of our episodes. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. We also have merch available. We have new podcast logo merch. You know, we have a new podcast logo now and we have merch with that logo on it. We also have Club Egypt merch. 
there for your perusal. And that's at our Threadless shop. Uh, and the link to that is in our show notes. Uh, Sadie, do you have anything else to say before we get to our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons? So in general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, uh, child abuse, mental, physical and sexual abuse and spiritual abuse, including guilt and shame and fear. We can't predict fully what's going to be a trigger for each individual person but we are going to do our best to give you a heads up if we're going into detail about any of these topics. We try to avoid graphic detail unless it's very relevant to the story that we're telling. In this particular episode, we're dealing with a lot of mental control and brainwashing, especially tactics like sleep deprivation and how that is used to control people. We're also briefly going to be talking about tithing. Uh, I don't think we're going to be going into... um, anything super upsetting in this episode other than that. Yeah. um, And so without further ado, our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons, your names are Alex Todd, Anisha Patel, Brittany, Brooke Tolley, Carrie R., Crystal Patterson, Eleanor Donahue, Emery Fairlosser, uh, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Jen Kacharski, Jessica Tambo, Kater Wee, Catherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Lorena Watson, Michaela Upright, Madeline Cusick, Mary Martin, Megan Arndt, Mike Smith, Miranda Day, Rachel Bernadowitz, Rebecca Hoyt, Reverend Robert Stutz, Sadie's actual BFF Morgan, Sarah Reese, Shane Horton, Stephanie Johnson, Tiffany Enderby, uh, Victoria McKenzie, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. Uh, also, Susie. Susie is a new patron. This Susie week. is a new patron. Oh, well, thank you so much, Susie. Uh, brand new. Uh, I know you from the Facebook group. Excellent contributor. Excellent person. We love you so much. So, Sadie, let's get into the yes. episode. Let's do this now. So, Sadie, um, a few months ago... Uh, like you said, we talked about what a day in your life was like when you were in high school, what a day in your life was like when you were in college. We talked about weekdays. We talked about weekends. Um, my memory of those episodes were that it, it, like your scheduling just seemed relentless. Yeah. What you surely noticed in that episode was that there, well, in both of those episodes, was that there wasn't really talk of a day of rest You catch, I was able to catch hours here and there where there wasn't anything scheduled, where I was able to rest a little bit. But even then, I had homework. I was trying to have some kind of social life. I was trying to catch up on sleep, trying to catch up on the Bible in a year plan before anyone discovered my shameful secret that I was falling behind on my Bible in the year plan. IFB people, in my experience, don't really do mental health days or days off. They do go on vacation uh, sometimes, but a lot of the typical things that you would do on vacation are off the table. They won't just go to the movies to relax. They try to stay entirely out of Vegas, which is the most relaxing place on the entire planet to me. 
they <laughs> avoid <laughs> I love Vegas. Uh, they avoid public beaches because of all the, you know, immodesty. And drinking a tropical alcoholic beverage by the pool is just completely out of the question for like 14 reasons. We talked about some of the physical effects of this in those episodes. I think it's obvious that if you carry out that kind of schedule long term, you're going to have some health issues. Um, I know you've spoken about this in the past before. It's that you do have like you still have uh, lasting physical health issues relating to this level of overwork that what you you were dealing with were for what six seven years yeah about seven years yeah um i'm not a doctor and i do not know anything so i don't want our audience to take this as anything but my opinion because this could be totally wrong for all i know but my theory runs along the lines of adrenal fatigue i know that uh adrenal fatigue is not something that has been proven to be real but my thought is that your adrenaline is so high in that kind of like high pressure hard work environment that when you are no longer in a high pressure hard work environment anymore your brain chemicals and adrenaline levels are all out of whack that's that's my theory on why people tend to have issues after leaving this kind of environment well like this a this is a very extreme example that you would be dealing with and also, you know, like the, your, your body learns to operate in certain ways, like we, uh, like during adolescence and, and during childhood. And we know this, that you're, it, it's true with your mind as well. Um, but it, it's, it's difficult to reprogram, even if you try to do it like, and you're not that many years removed from it, even if you're, you're like in your 20s and you try to reprogram, it's still difficult to do. Yeah, there are there are so many factors and so many things that can potentially go wrong. There's also the very real issue of malnutrition. If your family is extremely poor because they're in a cult, you can absolutely just have chronic malnutrition from being fundy. And that can be a chain reaction starter that causes a lot of different health issues. You know, um, I don't know if you knew this. But the average height of adults in this country increased rapidly between 1960 and 1980, largely in part to like better nutrition for children. So, yeah, I have heard of that. And there are modern studies showing that children with poor nutrition are still shorter on average. I mean, who knows? Like, maybe if you hadn't been funded, you'd have been like a WNBA star. Who knows? Yeah. Except for the fact that I do not understand basketball. Oh, back to what I was saying about nutrition, though. As an adult, if you if you grew up fundy and food was the only allowable vice, it was the only thing that you were allowed like to use the way that people would use substances to unwind, that can lead to diabetes or obesity or just general poor health and poor nutrition. And it is, I don't, I cannot blame people for this. Because there is literally no other allowable avenue for them to blow off steam. And there is literally no time for them to purposely exercise other than walking around soul winning. Yeah. And I mean, if you're like working super hard, just like all day, all day, all day, and you've got so many kids to take care of and you don't have time to cook, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to spend $9 on a salad, like a kale salad with walnuts and like a kai berries? Or are you going to like, 
hit up Wendy's on the way home and get like a Western bacon cheese. Like, uh, right. And, and what's like, what less expensive do? as right. well. If you're super poor from being fundy, that McDonald's dollar menu is going to be your best friend. It was yeah. my best friend for a lot of years. Dollar McChickens, man. They, they I the miss style. the Dollar McChickens still. In college, man, they hit. They didn't miss. They never missed. When I was working retail, that, those were the reason I survived. Mm-hmm. Um, so things that I've experienced and things that I've heard from other survivors are that there are a lot of common things, common health issues that could probably be traced back to living this fundy kind of lifestyle. I think headaches and fatigue are, are really common. Uh, psoriasis, autoimmune disorders, brain fog, fibromyalgia. Those are all the, the top things that I hear about most often. Just out of curiosity, do, like, do you, has, has anyone ever done a study on the numbers of people who, ha- who suffer from these afflictions in like ex-fundamentalist versus general population? Because if not, that would be a really fascinating study. I know like there's tons of people in our Facebook group that like we hear about this all the time where people will talk about their chronic illnesses in the Facebook group mm-hmm. um, and how they're like yeah, this. I, I like, I mean, they're lay people. They're not doctors, but they will say, I think this was caused by um, X thing that used to happen to me in fundamentalism. And I, I don't really see any reason to disbelieve them. I don't either because it is it is very hard to know where especially this kind of chronic health condition comes from for anybody because you can get diagnosed with one of these things but a lot of times there isn't a clear cause and if we're seeing this level of commonality of well this many people are reporting this condition and this many people are also reporting these certain conditions growing up correlation doesn't equal causation but it is something worth looking into I don't have any data on percentages of ex-fundies who report these conditions. Uh, maybe we should design a survey because I think if we could get a decent sample size, like if we could get a thousand or two thousand ex-fundies to take a survey, we might get something statistically significant. Yeah, well, that I mean that that is interesting. I mean the the and a lot of times with these sorts of things, the way it works, at least with with medicine is that they won't, it won't be like, this is the thing that caused this to happen. It will be like this thing that happened in your life increased your risk factor by 20%. Right. And then this other thing that also happened increased your risk factor by another 20%, but it's compounded on each other. So basically right. that's like, you, you've got 50% extra risk factor on top of, of everything. So, mm-hmm. so personally, um, I've, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but I have, chronic fatigue um and i'm still working with my doctor to try to find an answer or try to find something that would make this better i just feel sleepy or worn out all the time i am extremely caffeine dependent because i started needing coffee to function even as a 12 13 years old i could not stay awake through my day without drinking caffeine I cut down a lot uh, when I was expecting Chuck and I'm on much lower levels of caffeine needed to function than I used to be uh, because I never quite went back to the level that I was at before after I had had a baby. But I still I cannot skip having caffeine in a day because I will get horrible headaches, Um, even if the amount that I need is fortunately a lot less than it used to be. 
I I kind of just perpetually feel like I worked out really hard yesterday. Oh. But at this point in time, I, I really believe that it came from those six or seven years when my body was still growing and still maturing. But I was working at what would be an, an extreme level even for an adult. I think that the stress of the amount of work that I was doing and not having enough rest and the mental stress of fundamentalism and also the fact that I wasn't eating enough because of fundamentalism and the mental strain, I think all of that, just something is wrong somewhere because of all of that. After hearing all this stuff about you, I like personally, I find it amazing that you're as capable as you are like that you're able to get everything done that you do, that you're never a person to like shirk on a responsibility or, or pass the buck to somebody else. So what I think about that is that I've seen a lot of damaged people after fundamentalism. We all took damage, whether mentally, spiritually, physically, all of the above. And we all reacted to that damage differently. I've found a level to which I am happy to push myself, and I don't push myself beyond that level. I think I found a good balance for my life. I just, I don't want to be held up as some kind of shining example of work ethic, because I think that's very exclusionary of people who just don't have, whose capacity is lower than mine, because everybody's level of capacity or capability is going to differ. And how much of a person, how much a person is able to salvage of their health is going to differ. I absolutely think my maximum capacity is much lower than it would have been if not for my IFB life. I know for a fact that my mental capacity and my ability to handle things, my clarity of thought, that kind of thing was seriously impacted by both my fundamentalism induced TBI and by fundamentalism in general. Because I remember when it was different. I remember when my brain worked much better. But I think what I've done is I found my new maximum capacity. And personally, I do want and enjoy working at my new maximum capacity as long as I can protect myself from trying to push past that maximum. My dad used to say it's a sin to do less than your best. And that's really? yeah, and that's a pretty fundamentalist phrase. But I internalized that concept of like my best is the minimum acceptable. Mm. I have tried to make that a healthier concept by accepting that sometimes my actual best is less than I want it to be. And that my best means my best, not um, my best 10 years ago or my best on my best day every single day. But once I once I accepted that doing my absolute best is the best I can do and not trying to push past that, I was able to take pride in doing my best again and enjoy that, even if my best isn't up to my arbitrary standards of what I think it should be. I think that's an interesting point. Um, wow, that, that's a sin to do less than your best. I think that was a Jack Hiles quote, too. Oh, that does sound like a Jack Hiles quote. I'm pretty sure it was. 
I yeah I did I, that's that's something I really wanted to note um and I really wanted to because I know we're go- we're gonna have to talk about that later that's gonna come up again later I'm sure when we're talking about this yeah so my point though as far as you know me being capable of doing a lot of stuff is that I always try to remember that other people's best is not the same as my best effort <laughs> even in the in the Fundy Survivor world my best effort and somebody else's best effort might be different. I think in Fundy World, this concept does not exist. We were all held to the standards of the highest achievers, and those people's accomplishments were used as ammunition against the rest of us. So it would be, well, George saw 15 people saved this week. Why did you only have three people saved this week? So you answer that question, and no matter what you say, it's the wrong answer, because no matter what you say, it's an excuse. And then you get shamed for making excuses, which is a big funding no-no. And that did come from Jack Hiles. Uh, this is where we play the uh, the Sadie Triggers Herself theme song. Man, oh, this is just so... But as I said, I feel like go ahead. This is like making my hair stand up on end. I'm so angry about hearing about it. So... You know? <clears throat> Well, let me let me get further into the psychology of how this affects people, because I think this next part is really going to blow your mind. Re- okay, so go the, for it. the achievements of the high achievers are used to shame people who are not the high achievers, right? But those achievements are also used to control the high achievers themselves. So if George had 15 salvations this week and then... That was used to publicly or privately shame everyone who didn't have 15 salvations this week. Now, George has to go out next week and keep it up because if he doesn't have 16 salvations next week, now all of a sudden George is backsliding. So George has been given status because of his achievement, but that status is not actually helping him in any way because he's now living with the threat of having his status taken away if he doesn't continue to achieve. Mm. Wow. Okay. So the achievements of the people who achieve the most are used to hurt everybody. I mean, did that make you resentful of the people who were achieving, I guess, better soul winning numbers or, or whatever, or, or were seen as, as having higher status than you because you would be held up to that. And if you saw somebody really, really trying and really, really going for it. No, it's, It's not resentful because being resentful is jealousy and jealousy is a sin. And if you are jealous of somebody else's soul winning numbers, then it's not about the souls to you. It's about their numbers, which is a sin. So it's not jealous or resentful. Mm -hmm. It's I don't know why that person has more of the power of God than I do. Because remember, in the fundy world, nothing that you do is of your own power. Your own achievements are not of your own power. Whatever you, whatever you do is because of God. So if somebody is doing better than you, it's because they are finding more favor with God or they have more of God's power or they have more of the Holy Spirit in them. So it's not, man, I wish I could achieve like George does. It's what is George doing differently to get the power of God more than I have the power of God? Then you hear through the grape th- grapevine that George is fasting an entire week out of every month. So you start doing that or you hear through the grapevine that George is uh, driving around the city in the middle of the night praying for lost souls. So you do that. Or you hear that George tithes 20% instead of 10%. So you start doing that. And it's, it's that. It's why am I 
not getting God's power. What's wrong with me? What am I? Where's my hidden sin? So it's like an arms race, but not really. But you're not allowed to call it that. Oh, mm. right. And if you're if you're really sold out, it's you really believe that there's something wrong with you, like some hidden sin. And then that's how people get more and more fundamentalist because you'll think, well, George's wife only wears dresses that are halfway between her knee and her ankle. She doesn't wear dresses that only go right below her knee. So maybe I should start wearing longer dresses like her and then I'll get more favor from God. Or George's family doesn't even have a television. So maybe I should throw my TV out and I'll get more favor from God. So then you you become or you'll get convinced that something is your secret sin. You'll get I have seen people get convicted over their favorite kind of soda. Well, I've decided that really Dr. Pepper is an idol and it's coming between me and God, so I'm going to quit drinking it. Um I've decided that and then like it, I've decided that my dog is an idol and it's getting between oh. me and God, so I'm going to give it away. I'm going you know I all sorts of things, anything that you love becomes a potential idol. And maybe that's the reason that God's not giving you his power. So it just turns into this like destructive cycle as you try to live up to the people who have better luck than you do out soul winning or are a little bit more charismatic. Well, would you have anybody? I mean, I'm, I'm, w- would you have maybe somebody in your ear saying, hey, look, maybe you should think twice about I don't, like g- giving away your dog? I know you love that dog. That's not going to help you find Jesus more. No, because if you say something is an idol and it's getting between you and God, that is a big deal. If somebody told you, no, keep the dog, it's not an idol. Now that that person is encouraging you to sin and you shouldn't really associate with them because they are giving you an excuse to sin. So I think this is this is an important concept because it gets into the psychology of fundamentalism. And this really only works when talking about the people that are the most sold out. But this is so, like the mindset. So would you, uh, d- when you were young were, uh, and, and you were involved in this, did you ever decide that you had to give something up that was just like some random thing that was in your life? Yeah, I've told you, well, I've told you about the... Um, the Wizard of Oz thermos, right? Yes. Okay. So that, uh, but that was like a sin thing, not a power of God thing. I know I gave up something weird as a teenager, and now I'm trying to think of what it was. Right, because the Wizard of Oz thing, that was a pastor who came and said that uh, the Wizard of Oz was uh, like witchcraft or something. That was, yeah, that was my pastor before my dad became a pastor. He said that anything with witchcraft in it, period, was a sin. I'm trying to remember like what weird thing I gave up as a teenager. I know I burned my library card as a teenager because I was checking out inappropriate young adult fiction like The Hunger Games and Ella Enchanted. Oh, Ella Enchanted can't have that. Yeah, uh, that's extremely sinful. I think there's an unmarried kiss in that book. Heaven forbid. I can't remember the other like weird thing I gave up as a teenager. If I remember it, I'll tell you. <laughs> But you, but you've done this. Yeah, you you felt like you had to give something up. Okay. Oh, all the time. Like as a teenager, it was always like, oh, this is a sin. That is a sin. God convicted me about this. Every day is Lent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it never ends. There's never there's never yeah. a Fat Tuesday, and there's never an Easter. So I I want to I want to transition to another point though, because there's another piece of the puzzle that tends to get overlooked. 
why would a cult that depends on the labor of members to grow and survive want a burnt-out, tired, exhausted, unhealthy workforce? Ever wonder about that? Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you about that. Um, because it, I would think that they would want people who are in like peak performance mode for the their ultimate soul-winning acumen, you know? Well, soul-winning in particular... In real life, outside of Fundy Brain, it's maybe half talent or work and half luck. Because you can either be super charismatic just naturally, or you can practice your script a bunch and have a have a pattern that makes you seem very charismatic. And you can do that all day, but if it rains and you can't find enough people to witness to, your preparation and charisma just is not going to get you far. But, but why would a cult want underfed, sleep-deprived, burnt-out laborers. Number one, sleep deprivation makes a person's will weaker. Everyone who has ever birthed a child or done full-time care for a human newborn knows all about this. I don't think I know a single parent who didn't make some questionable Amazon Prime calls while feeding their baby <laughs> in the middle of the night. Yeah. Are you buying the stupid junk on like the, the Instagram ads? Like the, the the QVC meets ASMR TikTok style Instagram ads for like, you, oh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? That, like the weird pieces of rubberized plastic that are like combination like rent, lint roller and doorstop. Yeah, stuff that things. you would usually look at and be like, huh, that's neat, but I don't actually need that. So I'm not going to buy it. Because sleep deprivation really wears down a person's inhibitions. So in Interesting. A, yeah. So in a cult environment... A person who is sleep deprived is more likely to believe whatever it is that they're being told. There are plenty of people who, in normal life, if you told them that there is a satanic plot to take over the world and they were well rested and well fed, they would say, no, I don't think there is a satanic plot to take over the world. But if that same person is tired, chronically sleep deprived, they're way more likely to agree, well, maybe there is a satanic plot to take over the world. Especially if everyone else around you is going along with it too. So everybody is, so is everybody just sleep deprived? Yeah, like, I, I think so. Even, even like, I guess your dad was a pastor and we talked about how hard he was working. Yeah. Um, when he was pastoring, he got less sleep than the church members. Maybe like the people at the top of the top get more rest. I don't know. So Jack Scop might be getting like a full eight hours, but I guess a, a pastor David Carpenter in, in Cahokia isn't getting a full night of, of sleep anytime. So I can tell you that Jack Hiles always preached in sermons about how he, oh, I get two to four, <laughs> two to four hours of sleep a night. And that was, but I don't know that I believe this. Um, if Jack Hiles said it, then there's a 100% chance that it's not true. Um, I feel like, oh no, it's a 99% chance. <laughs> he said like something true, surely at some point. I don't know. I have to listen back to the tapes. But I can tell you when my dad was pastoring, he was getting maybe three to five hours a night on average. Sometimes a little bit more, but that was his average for years and years. And that's that's no way to live. That'll like that that'll burn you out and that'll yep. destroy your 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 physical health and your mental health. I mean, that must have been like a, a major contributing factor. It was it was I absolutely believe it was. So Aside, aside from sleep deprivation making people easier to control, I think that there's one more factor that we have to talk about when we talk about sleep deprivation. 
So something that I noticed from my cult experience is that having your whole life wrapped up so tightly in a church and in a cult mindset makes things seem like a much bigger deal than they are. Uh, it allows it allows the group mentality to dictate how big of a deal things are as well. In what sense? So this is the concept that allows church members to downplay abuse. So your whole life is wrapped up in this group. All of your time is spent there. You're mentally and physically worn down and exhausted from the work and the expectations. So the group says, the side hug from hell is a big deal and I'm going to get expelled from my college. And getting expelled from college is the world's biggest deal. It's just about the worst thing that can happen to you as like a 20-year-old fundy. I, when I had that threat hanging over my head, I felt like I was going to lose everything. I was going to lose my reputation. I was going to lose my chance of ever getting married. I was going to bring shame to my dad and my family and my church and like my future husband and children. If I had them, I thought that the stupid side hug was the end of the world. But if something like really big happens, like, like an abuse scandal, does it, I mean, I mean, I guess a side hug is a small enough thing for them to actually be able to police on their low capacity right am i getting this right i think you are but but something like an actual abuse scandal would be too much for any of this collective of overworked people to deal with so they what they just say well i couldn't possibly deal with a problem of this magnitude i'm sure god will sort it out and then they do nothing because getting rid of the past or dealing with the social fallout whatever from that and then finding a new one I guess that's just too much of a, that's like beyond their capacity. That would just be so overwhelming. So I think that is, yeah, that's spot on. That's half of what I'm seeing. So on on one hand, something really big happens and people are like, I don't want to deal with this. This is too much. Um, I need a, (laughs) a large meal and like three days of sleep. The other thing, though, is that church leadership can downplay the really big thing that happened because the group mentality defines what is and isn't a big deal. So the group mentality says a premarital side hug or getting kicked out of Bible college is the end of the world. But the group mentality also says that if church leadership abuses somebody, well, he fell into sin. He's just like King David. The devil got him because God has big things planned for us, and that makes the devil so mad. Well, he's repented, and Jesus took care of it, so you don't have to worry about it. You're not going to think, you don't think for yourself when you're chronically sleep-deprived. You go with a group mentality, and it allows the group to dictate how you should feel about happenings in the group, and it's so much easier to just accept what they're feeding you and move on because you do not have the emotional capacity or the time to actually think about it or look into it deeper. And so, okay, so the devil, I, so it, it's like, then, and everything is, if the devil is acting through somebody, it's because you're doing something really important, right? Like, or. Right. So if the devil comes after a leadership person, it's because you're doing a good job and the devil's trying to shut you up. Okay, so the devil is going to be influencing this this pastor towards pedophilia in order to uh, uh, ruin the church bake sale, which is going to pay for the missionaries, which is going to save 
X number of souls in Botswana, which is right. going to or the the bake sale that is that is to raise money for new pews. Like you've been raising money for the same new pews for like ten years, and somehow you still don't quite have enough money for the new pews. But nobody has time to look into that either because you're too busy and you don't have the emotional capacity. But then the stuff that you can handle, like the side hug, that gets blown up because it's actually within their capacity to handle. So they just go balls to the wall. Okay. I get, oh my God. Right. So I the get, group okay. can dictate who is privileged enough to break the rules. So pastors and who is going to be in so much social jeopardy if they break the rules. So to cap mm. this all off. They prevent you from learning or using any mental health terminology at all. So this entire section that we've been talking about, I've been saying things like emotional capacity, but that entire concept of like having the spoons for something like physical or emotional capacity to handle or do things that does not exist for the fundies because that is psychology and psychology is of the devil. You don't even have the words, like the vocabulary to express, I'm maxed out and I can't emotionally cope with this. I have heard so many times of people who grew up in fundamentalism that had panic attacks through their adolescence and young adult years and did not know that it was a panic attack because they had been told anxiety and panic attacks aren't real. So they had literally just been living. I have heard stories of former IFC pastors who had panic attacks behind the pulpit. What did they think was happening? They uh, they just thought it was some kind of health problem or thought it was the devil attacking them or learned to ignore it. Like I had near daily panic attacks in high school and college and just learned to f- to get through it until it quit. And you don't know that it's a panic attack because you, you've been told that that doesn't exist. Wow. Okay. Th- thanks for, for making all of this so clear to me. This is okay. Cause I've had so many questions about all of this stuff, but this is all just so foreign to me. Thanks for, um, I think this is where, like, this is where thought control and emotion control tie in with psychological abuse. Well, I feel that the primary, the primary way that I was abused in the IFB is mental and psychological. I was raised in purity culture, which is sexually abusive and repressive. Uh, and I was, I was, I underwent a very, very small amount of, of what I would consider physical abuse. But the vast majority of what I endured was mental and psychological. And I've spent a lot of time trying to untangle the threads of how this worked. I mean, I know like in, in the early episodes, we talked about uh, the, I mean, you, you, you've brought up this idea that if you just keep people sleep deprived, I, I like that we're going into this now. Um, I want to cut back to something uh, real quick that you said earlier. Um, so you mentioned that, that saying from your dad that it's a sin to not do your best. How, how does guilt factor into all of this with regards to that? I feel that the guilt of fundamentalism is so effective because it comes from so many channels. It's like the most up possible version of the multiple streams of income idea. It's like that, but multiple streams of guilt. Outsiders tend to be aware of a few of these channels of guilt. People tend to understand that fundamentalists are told from a very young age and throughout their lives 
that they are wicked, sinful, inherently bad, and very literally disgusting to God. We were constantly told from the time we could walk that we were not living up to God's impossible standards. And people from the outside tend to be aware of that, especially with so many of us now telling our stories and spreading this information. But there is actually a complex web of other channels of guilt. Because you have like what I was talking about earlier with why aren't you doing as well as the people who are doing the very best? And then the people who are doing the best feeling guilty if they don't live up to their own best days. Yeah. And I mean, constantly measuring yourself against other people. We know that's bad for mental health. Um, Of course, and we do it to ourselves without being forced to do that. But this is really institutionalized in the way that it's being done. Well, it's the institution taking our natural inclination to measure ourselves against other people and using it for power and control. And you're measuring yourself against yourself. And if you feel good about measuring yourself against other people and your own best days. So if you're at the top of your game and you are doing better than other people and you are performing up to the standard of your own best days, then you're told to measure yourself against God and against Jesus, who was literally perfect, because they've got to make sure that you still feel the appropriate amount of self-loathing. Man. So you're literally taught, here is how to make sure that you hate yourself enough. Because if you don't hate yourself enough, that's a sin. But wait, there's more. God, oh God, what else could there be? So there's also guilt if you complain about anything. And I'm, I think I've talked about this before, but it is still a sin if you complain inside your own mind without saying it out loud to another human being. Because remember, God hears your thoughts. And thank you, Jack Hiles, once again for the phrase, God hates complaining. So if you complain inside your, inside your own mind, and nobody else hears it, God still heard it because God hears every thought that you think. So you still send. And now God is mad at you for complaining inside your own brain. So God hates complaining? Yeah. Because when the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness and they complained about the manna, God got super PO'd about that. But if you even mentally think a negative thought, like say you're out soul winning and you think to yourself, it's too hot to be out soul winning today. It's hot outside. Well, now you're ungrateful to God for the weather that he made. And God made that weather on purpose, knowing that you would be out soul winning. Because before the time that the world existed, God planned that you would be born and that you would be out soul winning on that day and that it would be hot outside. So how dare you complain about God's plan? Wait, isn't that Calvinism? No, because it, because God didn't choose that you would be saved. God just knew that you would do it. What? I'm... Hmm. <laughs> It's prognostication, not predestination. Like three people got that joke and they love me right now. I, I don't understand that. That flew right over my head, but that's okay. It's okay. Like three people got it. They'll tell me who they are in the Facebook group. So if you think to yourself, if you're cleaning the toilets at church and you think to yourself, I don't want to clean this toilet right now. God heard it. And God sees that as rebellion against his plan, which includes you cleaning the toilets at church. So God hates that complaint that you just made. And now you've got to repent and fix your thought life. And you also have to confess that you were having bad thoughts. And now everybody is going to think that you were watching porn because that's a euphemism in the IFB world. But actually, you were just complaining inside your brain. You can't just say I had a spirit of complaint instead of I had bad thoughts. You could. Yeah, you could. That would probably be be a better um, 
a better option so that people don't uh, don't think that you were watching porn. Wow. So this is this. I mean, this is where the behavior control really, really, really gets over into the thought control territory. And this is like the yeah, the Venn diagram of where behavior control and thought control are kind of becoming the same thing. And and that's where I get into thinking that it needs all four to be a cult because this particular overlap, I think, is part it contributes to something being a cult. So again, tired and sick people are more willing to allow somebody else to get inside their head and think for them, just like they're willing to let other people make their decisions and tell them what to believe. They will let you tell them what to think and how to feel and pre-program their minds with thought-stopping cliches that will mentally set them on the path that they believe is most righteous. And they'll also let you tell them how to feel, which is also emotion control. I want to say to anybody um, who maybe they still struggle with this idea that, that, um, that God hates complaining. If God hated complaining, then he wouldn't have made the Jews into his chosen people. And <laughs> <laughs> so if you're feeling guilty in the IFB about complaining or having negative thoughts, now you have something to go down to the altar and cry and pray and repent about at the altar crawl. And it's literal thought crimes, which is probably why 1984 is a banned book in the IFB. Unsurprising coming from the same people that had you read the Scarlet Letter, but told you that Hester was the film. <laughs> Man, we've gotten some fun feedback on that one, haven't we? (laughs) So some people have health issues to the point that they actually lead the person to getting out of the IFB. I've seen multiple cases of this. Somebody's health broke down so much that they backed off from church responsibilities to try to get better. But then they were shamed for trying to get better instead of working through and trusting God. They're told that they have a lack of faith. And then that was so hard for them to hear because that is an awful thing to say to someone that they end up starting a deconstruction process and then eventually getting out of the cult. I know of at least five to 10 people personally who ended up going down this road. So what? So they go to the doctor and the doctor says, if you, if, if you don't, I don't know, change X, Y, Z behavior, if you, you will die. If you do not sleep, you will die. If you don't eat, you will die. So the people that I knew personally, it was more like their health got bad enough that they stepped down from church responsibilities. So like they decided to quit teaching Sunday school because that way they wouldn't have to come to church so early on Sundays. They wouldn't have to go to the Sunday school teachers meeting on Wednesday night and um, they wouldn't have to do lesson preparation or plan a spring program and a fall program that would cut a lot of stress out of their life. And you remember In Duty, in the Paul Sand episode, Jack Hiles said that this guy's entire life went downhill because he quit teaching Sunday school. And he became a murderer. Then he became a murderer. Yeah. Wife cheated on him. Yeah. And we're laughing about this murder because it didn't happen. If you don't don't know about it, go back and listen to the Paul Sand episode. Allegedly, it didn't happen. (laughs) I don't think it happened. (laughs) So, So, somebody gets sick. They decide to quit teaching Sunday school, so they have a little bit of extra wiggle room in their schedule. They get shamed for that, and and somebody tells them that they're going to end up a murderer like Paul Sand. And then that shame, plus the fact that they have a couple hours a week to take care of themselves for the first time in a long time, gets them questioning everything they've ever been told. 
I, I mean, I have seen people, not seen with my own eyes, but know of people who got into car accidents because they fell asleep in the car on the way to church. Actually, I'm pretty sure a couple of Hiles Anderson students have died this way through the years. And that's that's not just putting yourself, that's putting others at risk, too. It's like, right. And that's from this is from the same people that brought you alcohol is of the devil because you might drink and drive and ruin someone's life. No, I mean, but who needs alcohol when you have chronic sleep debt? Do you remember that uh, uh, Simpsons episode when Mo refuses to serve Homer? So he goes and donates blood and then drives to the top of a mountain where the air is thin. <laughs> yes, but sleep deprivation in a serious sense, sleep deprivation does affect you psychologically very similarly to low amounts of alcohol. Just FYI. So if something like that happens, if somebody genuinely hurts themselves or even dies because of sleep deprivation or the health issues brought on by the IFB or even like a random not your fault at all health situation like cancer or something happens, if you stay and keep working at the church, you get praised. And if you don't, or if you take a step back, you get shamed and compared to the people who did work through it. So if somebody like legitimately dies in an overworked situation, like they fall asleep behind the wheel, or if somebody dies from, like they die from heat exposure or like, or like heat stroke or something, they're, they're out soul winning. It's 100 degrees in Chicago. How How is that going to be treated in the church? Is there going to be any level of self-reflection? Is it going to be like, maybe we shouldn't ask uh, this 80-year-old woman to go out soul winning uh, when it's 100 degrees out? Or is it going to be, God took them to heaven, let's keep doing the same thing and the same thing and the same thing and change nothing? So before I answer your question, I do want to add the caveat that in my home church, nobody over like 70, 75 really went out soul winning. There was there was an age limit where it wasn't really expected anymore, which sounds really compassionate until you realize that you have to be old enough to get permission to not go do it. And that sucks. Um, If something like this happens the the message from the church would be, well, they died as a soldier in the army of God and they will have a great reward in heaven. It's almost a badge of honor if you die doing God's work or if you die on the mission field as a missionary or something, you are very honored after your death for that. Um, so if somebody did get sick uh, out soul winning because of the heat, maybe for two weeks, the church will provide bottled water for the soul winners. They'll have somebody who like drives around behind you while you're out soul winning in a car with a cooler and ice and bottles of water. And then like two or three weeks later, they'll quit doing it and everything will go back to normal until the next person gets sick. But for a lot of us, so one way or another, this got too much and we got out. And when we got out, we needed to rest. Some of us had the space and the opportunity to do that. So at the time I got out, I was very lucky to live in a low cost of living area and I could work part time. Some people never had time to rest. If someone's escape from the IFB or another cult was very stressful, they may still have had to go straight into finding a job in self-reliance. Like if you were working for the IFB, like working for a church and had a family to support and you left the IFB, you're going to have to go straight into working a job. You don't have lag time to catch up. A lot of people never really got a break. So was it hard for you to cope with the idea of having free time? It was hard. Yeah, it was hard for me to learn how to rest. Even those of us who were lucky enough to have a break, to have 
a few months or a few years to take it easy. People who were lucky enough to get out and be able to support their family on 40 hours a week and have some rest time around that, even people like us may not know how to rest. This probably seems really wild to outsiders. I think we should go take up the offering and then come back. And I want to talk about how the IFB defines rest and why that definition doesn't really work in the real world. That sounds great. Um, And just want to say that all of the stuff you've said so far today is is fascinating to me. It's been extremely enlightening. And thank you for explaining it so well. Oh, I'm I, I'm glad that I finally was able to get my thoughts in some kind of reasonable order to explain this, because this is so like straight psychologically encompassing and psychologically strange. And it's one of the hardest things to explain to somebody. Yeah. And I have I just have no um, I, I, coming into this. I had no grasp of this this whole idea. Um, thanks. Uh, uh, anyway, let's go take up the offering and then we'll come back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break, and we are here. We are talking about the thing that I am very good at and that Sadie had to learn to do, which is chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool. And um... So I actually wanted to ask you... What do you do to relax? What is, if you were going to plan a perfect relaxing day, what would you like to plan for that? Okay, a perfect day for me? Yeah, you're feeling a bit tired. You've had a busy week. You need some me time. You want to be like refreshed and on the ball when you get back to work and you've got a whole day just for you. What are you going to do? Okay, so hypothetical day is a Sunday. So perfect, perfect, uh, I guess, weekend day for me is, is going to be probably going to wake up at like 545 or six, because um, that's usually what time I've got to wake up to watch F1 racing, make myself a cup of coffee, watch the race or watch qualifying, whatever. Then I'll go to the gym for an hour or two, maybe sit in the sauna 15, 20 minutes, come home, 
eat some hummus. I don't know, drink some like grapefruit seltzer water, just like relax, mangoes, kiwis, like shower. I don't know, watch some YouTube videos about watches or electric cars or, you know, watch some TV or something. Maybe go to the grocery store, come home, get, t- get dinner, like go to maybe get Thai food, grasa. I don't know if it's a weekend, then there's probably football on and then I'll probably go to bed. So, um, that's, that's kind of it. If I'm just like relaxing, that's kind of what my day is going to look like. It's just going to be a, a good day. Um, well, that sounds very nice. Yeah, it, it is very nice. You know, you got to have some physical activity there to make sure that you don't, you know, get stagnant because I can't ever be stagnant. So I don't often get a full day of rest because, uh, I chose of my own free will to create a human child who I am now responsible for. But occasionally my husband will take her to my in-law's house for the morning or the afternoon so I can really get some chill time without you know the toddler screams. But I'll tell you what I like to do when I do have some time. Number one, I love a good nap. Perfect nap is on a crisp spring or fall day, like light blanket. Rain, also great for napping. Cozy winter naps with fluffy blankets. Yes, summer siestas. I just, I love a nap. Interesting. I'm going to say something that's some, that's that's controversial. Oh no, you never do that. Yeah, I've never done that ever, but I, I don't enjoy napping. I feel bad for you. A nap is one of the best things in the whole world. I think that napping is a waste of time. That's that's my opinion. My, my I've only napped on purpose on like five or six occasions in my life. And the only times that I've ever done that is uh, when I was A, catching up on sleep that I missed. B, when I was driving home late at night and had to pull over to a rest area to, you know, sleep for like half an hour or so to make sure that, you know, I, 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 I was safe. Or C, I had... A nap one day last week, which was one of the days when I had coronavirus. Yeah, that's that's crazy to me because I nap on purpose like five or six times a week if I can make it happen, if I have the time. Really? Yeah. But part of that is that I can fall asleep anywhere, anytime on purpose which is a skill that I picked up at Hiles Anderson because I learned that I could catch a few minutes of sleep on the bus to and from Wednesday night church or back home after Sunday night church or whatever. See, I, I do, I do feel that it's a learned skill. I like for me personally, I've never been in the situation where I was just like, I have two hours to kill. Why don't I go like snap my fingers and have those two hours be gone instead? Like, well, I, 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 I don't understand the appeal of doing that. I get nothing out of it. And I usually feel more tired after I nap than, than before. See, that's just an issue of not knowing how long your sleep cycles are. My sleep cycle is six and a half hours. So if you took a six and a half hour nap, you'd probably feel great. Yeah. But then what would I do at night? Then I would be up all night. Yeah. Sleep so you get your time back. Yeah, but then I'm all then I'm nocturnal now. I got to be nocturnal now. No, I sleep for six and a half hours, no more, no less. So when I'm not napping, I also really enjoy 1990s computer game Age of Empires. Um, oh hell yeah! I know I've mentioned AOE on this show before, but I can zone out and play that for hours and hours. And if I'm not doing one of those two things and I need to just turn my brain off, there is nothing better than The Bachelor. I've heard from some listeners who are also Bachelor fans. 
I've personally fall somewhere like this great happy medium between hate watching and love watching. I enjoy the complexities of the mind games that they play with each other. My hottest of all hot takes in the hot take universe is that the bachelor is the Stanford president experiment, but with hot people. That's fascinating. A of all, what's the Stanford prison experiment? <laughs> How do you not know what this is? You went to college. I didn't study psychology. That that was not one of the subjects that I took. So the Stanford prison experiment was a massively unethical research experiment where young men from Stanford who enrolled in this study were placed in a mock prison for, I think it was supposed to be, and this is off the top of my head, but I think it was supposed to be two weeks, but it ended up getting cut short because of what happened. Anyways, some su- some students who enrolled in the study were randomly assigned to be prison guards, and the other students were randomly assigned to be prisoners. And the findings were about like the hive mentality and how people in power, especially a group of people who has power over another group of people, will naturally tend toward cruelty to the people that they have power over. The second thing I wanted to ask about was uh, what civilization do you play as in Age of Empires? Byzantines. That tracks. I will also play the Chinese. Chinese are good. Do you ever play Japanese? I play Japanese. No, not really. Teutons is my little make my third. Teutons, okay. Teutons are solid because they're they're like a little night guy. Their their castle person night guy is really expensive, but they are pretty good. So before before we get back into the episode i do want to note that i vastly oversimplified the stanford prison experiment so please don't come for me i've had enough people send me messages about things this week thank you okay Mm. um so i don't think i had a good definition for rest in the ifb this is something that i perceive to maybe be changing a little bit right toward the end of me getting out but when I was all in in the IFB, resting was not really something that was talked about. When you're reading the when, when you're reading the the Bible, and it says the seventh day is the day of rest, what do they mean by that? So resting was defined as not doing anything at all. So God rested on the seventh day of creation, and that's when He didn't do anything at all except for sit around and exist as God. So when the Bible commanded that the seventh day be a day of rest, that was the Old Testament law. So when Jesus died on the cross, he abolished Old Testament law, except for the parts that say, I am the Lord after it, and the parts that the IFB still want to enforce. So we keep the moral law, like thou shalt not kill, but we dispense the ceremonial law. So the seventh day now, according to the IFB, because of Jesus dying on the cross, it's not supposed to be a day of rest anymore. It's now supposed to be a day of service to God, which means working for the church. Isn't every day a day of service in the IFB, though? Yes, but you know how you're supposed to tithe 10% of your income to the church? Pre-tax or post-tax? Pre-tax. But you're supposed Mm. to tithe also 10% of your time. So since there are 168 hours in a week, you're supposed to be actively working for God at least 16.8 hours per week. And reading your Bible doesn't count towards that because that's for your own good. So it's therefore not service. This wasn't enforced in our church. And I'm not sure if it was common in the broader IFB, but the concept of 
you should give 10% of your time to God is definitely something I've heard a lot of times. So how would they go about enforcing it if it, if it was a church where they were where they were going to say that you have to give 16.88 hours of, of your time, of your week? So I have heard of churches that kept tabs on members' salaries and required everyone to tithe and marked envelopes so they knew who gave what and then calculated whether everyone was giving at least 10%. And if you didn't do that, you could get called out by name from the pulpit. You could get forced to go to the pastor's office after church, like the cult version of getting sent to the principal's office so that he could manipulate you into giving more. They're keeping track of people's salaries like this. So they know. So like what? So what do you have to like report every year? What you're like when you get your taxes? Well, remember, you you have to get counseling from the pastor before you get a job. So you go to the pastor and you ask him where you should apply for jobs. And then the pastor just asks you, what job did you get and how much is it paying? And then if you want to raise it the job, you're going to be making it a prayer request in church, right? Like, would everybody please pray that I get a raise at the job? And then if you do get a raise at the job, you have to tell everybody in church because then then it's an answered prayer. So you could just ask somebody how much money do you make at your job? If you're the pastor. That's extremely rude. What? So No. Well, on one hand, sharing salaries shouldn't be considered rude because, you know, workers' rights. Yeah, but but that's between co-workers. Right. I mean, I think that that generally destigmatizing talking about money is a generally good thing. But I get in, like, in the real world, it's considered rude. And it's definitely rude just to, like, ask somebody what they make. But this this is a cult that controls your masturbation there's no privacy like if they are that up Mm -hmm. in your business why on earth would you expect any privacy about money yeah i mean i like i saw the tweet that got screenshot and then flew around instagram a thousand times you know the one where they're just like oh make sure that you talk to your coworkers about uh your salaries and like your bosses can't tell you that you can't just you know that one you you saw that one Um, i've seen dozens like that yeah that's the thing where you're like you're all working the same job right and so you have to know to to make sure that nobody's getting yeah like why is this person getting paid twenty five thousand dollars a year for the same job that i'm doing and getting paid twenty thousand yeah right no but like and and you all know like if you're working that job you all know what ballpark is going to be but I don't know. It, it it feels extremely rude to ask somebody how much money they're making unless you're like, I don't know. It like makes my hair stand up. Like you can't ask that. But it, it's it's accountability thing because in the IFB, I mean, this is the people that brought you covenant eyes so that your wife can see if you shopped on any potentially pornographic websites. Um And you also have, like, you have an accountability partner. So if you sin, you tell this person. But it's not confession because that would be too Catholic. Anyway, um, no, it's it's everything, every part of your life. It it is a culture of not having privacy. And you're expected to be accountable for every action that you do. Um, These people also believe, and this is where I'm going to trigger myself for a second time this episode, maybe third, I haven't been counting. Um, (laughs) These people also believe that, and uh, trigger warning for, for like, um, Book of Revelation stuff, that these people believe that when, like, after the rapture and all of that stuff happens, there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ, which is where 
everything you ever said or did or thought is played on a big screen for everyone who ever lived to see. That sounds boring. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> you know, like to to be in the audience for that, you know, like yeah, I, that's like, true. I, and like, um, but I like I hated this as a kid because I was raised in modesty culture. So I was raised to believe that if anybody saw my body, it was a sin. So that led to when I was a kid, if I was like bathing or showering or changing clothes, I would try to hide, like go in my room and then go in my closet to change clothes and then try to change clothes super quick. Because I didn't want the people at the judgment seat really? of Christ to be seeing that. Because that's immodest. That That's so Psychologically fucks you up, man. That's so creepy. That's disgusting. Why do yes. they think that people want to be watching that? Like, it's, it's just, it's like, just, it's just like a twisted version of a twisted version of something that actually is in the Bible. Which is the, the idea that we are accountable to God and others for our actions. But it, it's terrifying. Yeah. And if, like, this... <laughs> This is how people get psychologically f***ed if they grew up um, IFB. Anyway, I feel like we got on a whole tangent from tithing, and that's something that needed to be explained. But I don't want to go any further down that road because I want to talk about something that was not allowed in the IFB. And that is self-care. Now, I don't mean the kind of self-care that I was referencing a moment ago. I mean, in like the in the more colloquial sense of that word, like little treats for yourself, getting a manicure, bath bombs, whatever it is, your thing that you do for yourself. I had this entire realization about this a couple days ago, and it's kind of blowing my mind. So in the IFB, as a woman or as an AFAB person who was expected to be a woman, you're expected to do all of these like, grooming tasks and look a specific way. So you're expected to have your hair done, your nails done, you wear the exact correct amount of makeup, whatever your camp of the IFB says that is. You're expected to dress nicely, but none of this stuff is so that you can feel good about yourself. All of this is 100% done for men. Mm. So the way that you dress is 100% for men. It's so that nobody lusts after you. And then everything else about your appearance, your makeup, your hair, your nails, your skincare, it is to honor your dad until you're married. And then after you're married, it's meant to look nice for your husband. So where do they draw the line between like nice, positive things that you can do for yourself that, I guess, quote unquote, enhance your countenance? Um, and then on the other side of that line is, opulent luxuries that are distracting you from serving the Lord? Where Where is that line? That's so kind of what I'm getting at is that there is not a line because nice positive things that you do for yourself is not a thing. Nice positive things that you do to enhance your countenance for God and other people is the only thing. So you're only allowed to have an 18 step skincare routine as long as you don't get any enjoyment from it. Yeah, so as long as your skincare routine is not preventing you from tithing, as long as your father or your husband approves of your skincare routine, and as long as you're doing it with a servant's heart, which is code for not enjoying it. So many of these things, like when you say self-care for femme people, what you think of is a lot of grooming stuff. So like what you think of is the most common things like getting a manicure, getting a massage, taking a bubble bath, getting your hair done, getting your eyebrows done, taking time to do skincare. Like all of that is like so branded and coded as like this is what self-care is for feminine people, which is a whole 
load of BS that I'm not going to get into. But none of those things in the IFB are for you. So we don't even get, like, as IFB AFAB people, we don't even get the benefit of, like, having to do these femme-coded things for ourselves. We have to do them for other people. So even if you do something that we would consider self-care, like taking a bubble bath, watching your favorite movie, getting a massage, it's not for you. It's so that you're refreshed to go out into the world and serve God or your husband. It's so that you can be more joyfully available. Because anything you do only for yourself is a sin. It's selfishness. So if you desire to do something, anything, you are obligated to suck the joy out of it first by figuring out how it is actually for other people. I remember reading... yeah. That's, so it's like it's double misogyny because it's like the societal misogyny of like things that women do for themselves are not actually like, uh, like you know, it's just like the societal bit of like, oh, you get to go to the grocery store by yourself as a mother. You're treating yourself. No, that's not a treat. That is a household care task. Try again. Wow. So it's like that societal misogyny plus in the IFB, the fact that you are not even allowed to enjoy it. <sighs> Or consider it to be something that you do for yourself. Is there anything that you are allowed to enjoy? So I remember reading... <laughs> um, hold on. Let me, let me see if I can answer that. Only the things that you're supposed to do. So like being a mother or being a wife. Soul winning. Teaching Sunday school. Um, sometimes like uh, extraneous things that are still considered... Uh, mm, like writing okay if you're a fiction writer and you write christian novels you can enjoy that or if you write a poetry or have a blog like you're allowed to enjoy that because that's still a ministry opportunity and it's still encouraging other women in the lord so this is so 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 like the 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 everything so everything has to have a secondary purpose so you can't. So nothing can can have the purpose of just itself. It has to have the secondary purpose, and the secondary purpose has to be this is for Jesus. Yes. Except the secondary purpose is the primary purpose, and the secondary pur- is maybe hopefully you'll possibly get some enjoyment out of this thing. Right, but it wouldn't but, matter if you enjoyed it or not because it's for Jesus. So you better do it. So you're going to do this thing. If it's something that you enjoy and you try to rationalize it as something that you do for Jesus, but even if you don't enjoy doing it for Jesus, you still have to do it anyway. Yes. And if you enjoy something, yeah. And if you enjoy something too much, like if you feel like your enjoyment is like 51% and the for Jesus is 49%, you either have to stop doing that thing or figure out a way to enjoy it less. We're getting into like Brabham fan car territory. This is nuts. I don't even like. I don't know what that is, but I believe you. Like eight people got that reference, but okay. Um, well, that this is yeah. this is the the episode of niche references. So I remember reading Beverly Hiles' book "Life Is Seen from the Goldfish Bowl" when I was a kid. In that book, she wrote about her experiences as a pastor's wife and how other pastors' wives should be. So this book was intended for wives of pastors, and it, the tone of it is basically like, yeah, our job really sucks sometimes, but this is how to survive it. I remember in that book, she wrote, 
a rather long explanation of why it is not selfish for a mother to take a few minutes to poop in peace rather than rushing it. Wait, she had to explain why that is not selfish. Yes. Now, she said it in much more flowery and feminine terms, but the expectation on IFB women is so high to avoid anything that could be seen as selfish that women who talked to Beverly Hiles about how to be a good mother and a good pastor's wife were thinking that they had to poop as quickly as possible so that they could get back to taking care of their children and serving other people. Apparently, people were actually injuring themselves trying to do this. Like, what? Like, they weren't taking, they, like... Like, they pushed too hard? Yeah, and then, hurt themselves or, or, make, or just not go when they needed to go. Oh, my God. What the f***? Yeah. This is... So, and I, I know that this sounds ridiculous, but I swear it's in that book. This is this is beyond the point where I'm like even feeling like I can laugh at this anymore. I'm f- like, this is just like that should be funny, right? But it's not. It's it's like I've I've done this show for long. That this is not funny. That's yeah. that's disturbing. That's it's, horrifying. So that is the level to which. <laughs> IFB people and especially IFB women feel that they have to avoid being selfish. So, you know, my therapist asked me the other day about, do you want to do this thing? And then I had to explain to her how knowing what I want is really difficult for me because I was raised to not have wants as much as possible. Mm. And, and she's like, well, what do you do for yourself? And... It is so difficult for me to do things that are 100% for myself. I was not raised with that concept. And it is it, it was so long before I learned it that it's it's still a little hard for me to mentally be, get there. So I remember when I was in the IFB, I heard sermons about how this uh, new self-care trend is of the devil because you're not supposed to care for yourself. You're supposed to care for others. But when they're talking about the new self-care trend, they're what are they are they talking about like is it like day spas and like massages and like acupuncture or are they talking about just like getting a few hours of peace and quiet to yourself? Uh all of the above. So anything that you would do that's only for making yourself feel good. So I, I thought of some examples for you while we were talking. Golfing because it's a hobby is selfish golfing with other pastors and fellowshipping and learning about how to run your church better is okay. Skincare or makeup because you enjoy it and it's your peaceful time in the morning is selfish. But if you're doing it because your husband likes it or because you can win more souls, it's okay. Taking time for yourself, just like having a few hours where you're not doing anything is selfish and lazy unless you're resting so that you can be more sexually available for your husband, in which case it's okay. So if I am a fundy man and I want to take my sons on a camping trip because it's fun and I like being outside, that's bad. Right. But if I want to take my sons on a camping trip because I want to teach them how to be real men and how to survive in the wild and how to impart upon them um, the values of traditional masculinity, that's okay. Right. So liking... I'm getting it. This is right, because <laughs> there, there's always going to be a spiritual purpose or something that you're doing this. You're doing it for other people for some reason. 
liking something is a sure sign of it probably being sinful. And I think Heather talked about this in her book. So you you shoehorn in spiritual purpose into your camping trip for it to be okay. You probably need to find a scripture where it's about like masculinity or spiritual leadership or going into the wilderness and make your kids memorize it while you're on the trip. For people that hate psychology and think that Sigmund Freud is of the devil, these are also people where a hot dog is never allowed to just be a hot dog. I know. But maybe that's why they hate Freud, because he made everything about like a certain set of like sexual impulses and relationships to different people in your life. But they make everything about the Bible. Say you have like hobbies or something. Are, are, are hobbies something... Because I, I know that you you hear about people who who have their ho- like are they something that are required to that you have in order to occupy the time that you would otherwise be spending idly? No, um, I don't think hobbies are really encouraged at all unless it's something with a spiritual purpose, like memorizing the whole Bible or learning Greek or like creative soul winning methods. So okay, so, so you if can't you want be into to- knitting. You can be into knitting as long as you are knitting things for your family or knitting like for knitting baby blankets for a crisis pregnancy center. Sorry, I'm rolling my eyes so hard or um, or like knitting things to give away like you can do that. Or if you OK, so say you want to have your hobby be making model airplanes. Well, you can make model airplanes as a hobby if you memorize scripture verses while you're doing it and then paint those scripture verses on the bottom of the wings, you can make model airplanes as a hobby if you are going to sell them at the county fair and give somebody a gospel tract with every one that you sell. In the IFB, though, generally you want to occupy your time with more work, not with recreation. So canning is an acceptable hobby because that's also work. Even recreation, when you do it, is supposed to have a spiritual purpose. So you don't get together with your church friends to play basketball for fun. It's a team building exercise for your soul winning group and you pray before and after. And the purpose is to build your faith and spend time in a Christian environment. So this is like doing object lessons, but with any action that you do, it's like action lessons, not object lessons. Yeah, well, there, there's a verse, taking every thought captive. Uh, I won't finish the verse because all of my exes are already quoting it. Everything you do from the minute you get out of bed in the morning until the minute you go to sleep is about Jesus and about other people. So Fundamentalism isn't a cult, everybody. It's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely not. This is... And, well, okay, so I just want to qualify that I don't think this is how it was for adults who were not church staff members in the IFB. And I would love to hear from anybody who was an adult, especially an adult with children while in the IFB. I know we have some listeners who did not get out until they were further, like further on into adulthood. They already had children. I think, I think people who were a little less sold out or not on church staff or did not grow up in it maybe didn't quite take all of this so seriously. But this is very much the way that me and my super sold out fundamentalist teenage friends thought. So I realized a few years ago that I had never figured out how to do things for myself. Like just, I enjoy this thing. I'm going to use my time on this thing and I'm not going to feel guilty about not doing work things right now. So I've really gotten into a couple things that I do because I enjoy them and it's something I'm still very much working on. But I got into skincare and 
uh, some makeup stuff over the last few years. Before that, it was just a thing that I had to do every day. Around my 27th birthday, I started getting into skincare and realizing that I actually enjoyed it. I, I started reading about new products and building a routine and spending money on nicer products. And then the pandemic happened and I didn't really care to wear makeup much around the house. So I nearly quit makeup and I started putting all this extra time and money and energy into skincare. And then as time went on, I realized that I could do makeup just for fun because I actually wanted to. So that's Hmm. been a new thing, even maybe in the last year or so, year to to two years. Like, oh, I can do makeup for fun and not because I feel like I'm obligated to look a certain way for other human beings. I also, when I first started doing this, I kept asking my husband if he approved of my makeup looks. Oh, no. (laughs) And he would just be like, "Um, yes, you look nice. That's the uh, knowing him. He's probably just like, what the f*** are you asking me that for? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's probably his his like, exact response. Like, yes. Why do I approve? Like, <laughs> well, that's the problem. I like reflexively ask for his approval on things, <laughs> and then every time he has to remind me that I don't need his approval to do most things. Hmm. Like you know, if I want to, if I want to change something that my that our our child that we share together is doing, I should probably get his approval. Like if I want to, if I want to make a major pur- purchase, I should probably get his approval because he's the other half of my household. But I had to learn that he does not need, he does not want or need to put his stamp of approval on every makeup look I do. Like if And if there is a look that I do that he's not a fan of, I don't have to go wash it off. I just wash it off when I'm ready and he can literally just deal with not liking the color of pigment that's on my face. How would you feel if he uh, if, if you said, oh, how do how do you like my new look? And he said, I don't approve of this countenance. <laughs> you like use if he used like fundy words or something like that. Would you just be like. I don't think he quite has the fundy vocabulary to do that. <laughs> he tries, like he tries to use the fundy words, um, but he's he can't quite put it together the fundy way. It's very funny. No, it's true. He doesn't listen to the show. No, he does not. He does not want to hear me talk about being traumatized, which I think is fair. Yeah. He does. He does know like all the story beats and the plot of everything. He just doesn't enjoy hearing me talk about trauma, which I think is understandable. So I had to unlearn that looking a certain way was something I had to do for other people. And then I had to learn that I enjoyed looking a certain way and taking care of my skin a certain way. And then I had to unlearn that I needed my husband's approval. And then I had to learn what I actually liked because I'm not limited by IFB makeup rules. I'm not limited by being in extreme poverty and and not being able to buy the products that I want to have. So it was, it was just such a process. So there's like steps to it. Yeah. It's like those, yeah. So when you first started doing it for you, did you feel like you had residual guilt? There was definitely, yeah, definitely an element of guilt. I had to learn that it is okay to spend reasonable amounts of money or time on something that has the sole purpose of making me emotionally feel good, which was a real head trip. 
I had to unlearn justifying everything that I did as being about God or other people, which was hard. But then I also had to learn that it is worthwhile to make myself feel good and not to feel like sinful or guilty about that. I also had to learn what it felt like to want something. Because I don't think I had a concept of... So, I, I obviously, I wanted things when I was still in the IFB. I want to eat that food. I want to buy that outfit or I want to play this song on piano. But I did what I... The disconnect was I didn't have, I want this, therefore I am going to try to get it. Or I want to do this and therefore I am going to do it. Because there was all of these steps between I want it and then fulfilling that. Because I want it. Is it a sin? Yes or no. Is wanting it a sin? Yes or no. Are there any, is this going to cause me to sin? Is this potentially going to be an idol between me and God? So there's all these questions that you have to ask between I want it and I'm going to do it. So this is like the exact opposite of the song Seven Rings by Ariana Grande. I don't know that song well enough to answer that. You want to do a thing or buy a thing or have a thing. And then there you ask your, you have to ask yourself this entire flow chart worth of questions. So they, I never drew a direct line between like, I want to and I'm going to. So you have to feel like you have to be allowed to want something like there are only certain things that it's acceptable for you to want. Yes. And also brainwashing makes you think you want things that you don't actually want. If you had asked me when I was 18, I would have told you that there was nothing I wanted more in the world than to marry a missionary and be a teacher. And I certainly don't want that now, but I don't think I wanted it then. Or I don't think, no, I did. I don't think I would have desired that at 18 if it were not for brainwashing. Of course you wouldn't. Right. So I was told what I wanted, and then I thought that I really wanted that. I mean, this is just an observation, and I don't think that I'm going to surprise anybody by saying this, is that uh, you are a much more unselfish person than I am just generally in life. You know what I'm saying? Like, Like, I will sacrifice my time or energy or money for a specific cause that I believe in, but I would also, if there was a box of pizza, if there was like a pizza, I would take the last slice of pizza, whereas I feel like Sadie... Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I doubt that you would take the last slice of pizza if there was only one left. Um, I, <laughs> I am 100% incapable of taking the last slice of pizza. Even if you haven't had any pizza yet and everyone else has had a slice already. I'm, I'm not trying to make myself out to be some kind of good person. I'm just, just fully honest. If I see a pizza box and there's only one piece left in it, what my brain says to me is, oh, the pizza is gone. Really? Yeah. One left is gone. There is no more. If there were two left, I see, oh, there's one left. So that's interesting because my brain says the pizza is almost gone. You better get that last slice before somebody else does or you won't get any pizza. Act quickly or the pizza is going to be gone. See, my brain says someone else surely wants the pizza more than I do, so I better make sure that they get it by not taking it. So do you feel like the the last slice of pizza has to be earned like through desire or through uh, deserving? Uh, mm-hmm. Like you, you have to be somebody who deserves the last slice? Or do you feel like somebody else might... Like, even if you were the one who, who was hosting the pizza party and you paid for the pizza and you'd only had one slice and everyone else had had two, you would feel like somebody else deserves it more than you do. Is, is that part of it? 
Or I don't think it deserves it. I think it's well, first it's need based. So if I was extremely hungry and I hadn't had any pizza and there was and I was sure that there was nobody in the room who was hungrier than me, then I would eat the last slice of pizza, no problem. I would I would probably feel compelled to ask the room whether it was okay if I took the last slice of pizza. But I but I I wouldn't have a problem taking it if everybody else was okay and I was the hungriest person. I think growing up in poverty with a lot of other poor kids has something to do with it too because I think what I the the thought process in my brain is like well there might be somebody here who doesn't have food at home. So if they eat three three slices of pizza and I only eat one or if I don't get a slice of pizza that's okay because I can go home and eat something else and they may not have that opportunity. So I so I want to keep going though with talking getting back to the original topic of taking care of your own needs and being assertive because I I really did have to learn that it does not make me a bad person to take care of my own needs. Like if I need to eat, I need to eat. I can zipper merge and I do not have to let every other car go in front of me. Thank you. That's a, you're you're in doing that you are serving everybody else. You are <laughs> helping everybody else who's in traffic by doing that. I just want to say That is one place I assert myself super well. If I'm merging yeah, weird local quirk about driving in Portland is that people do not zip emerge and they will get f***ing angry at you if you do. Like if there's two lanes on the, on the freeway and they're going into one, like everybody will immediately pile over into the lane that continues on. Like as soon as right. they see this, like and so there will be literally a mile of cars in one lane that are all you know, basically stopped and then mm-hmm. one lane for a mile that's completely empty. And so you can just like, that may be the area in my life in, in which I am best at asserting myself. No. One car gets in front of me. That is it. Yeah. If anybody else tries, I will put my the the front of my car way up to the car in front of me. You're not doing it. Yep. But that is like the only that's the only time I can really be assertive. Look, you just gotta save that energy and, and, and keep it, you know, and, and, and expand it to other areas of your life. And I appreciate that about you. Well, I think I think having a kid has also been helpful for this because it can still be hard to assert myself for myself, but advocating for her or putting her first in front of other people is not a problem for me. So I think it's t- it's conditioned me to be a little bit more assertive for myself. You know, one of the things I have noticed is that especially since we've started doing this show like 2 years ago, it has been two years. You like you've definitely become more assertive. Like when I listen back to the early episodes of the show, like I, you know, I, I would go off on a tirade or something, and you would like I wouldn't have you to be just like, okay, we're done here. Uh, you, you, you know. Yeah, we used to have to plan points where I was going to interrupt you because I just <laughs> could not jump in and interrupt somebody. Yeah, but that, like that's something you had to learn. Right. And I like I had to learn that just because a man is talking doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to disagree or interrupt or say my piece. I also had to learn a lot about boundaries and not over committing myself. So due to cult brainwashing, if someone asked me to help with something and I already had too much on my on my plate, I would just say yes anyway and then just work twice as hard to make it happen. That sounds exhausting. It was so exhausting that I'm still tired seven years later. <laughs> but I, I just, I, I struggled with turning down any kind of request for help or emotional support. 
I just, I had no boundaries. If somebody wanted to text me until two in the morning, I didn't feel like I could say, hey, you're important to me. This is important to me, but I need to sleep. And I didn't have like what I have now, where if somebody is in crisis and I feel like I'm a good person to help them, and I feel like I have the ability to rest the next day, sure, I'll talk to somebody late into the night if, if it's necessary. But if I'm not the best person to help them, or if I genuinely do not have the time, hey, this is important, but I'm going to bed. The IFB correlation to that, by the way, is the reason that people who are former IFB have trouble turning down requests for emotional support is that if someone is venting to you, the IFB idea is that you have been put there by God to give them spiritual wisdom for whatever they're going through. So you have to stick it out in the conversation until you come up with the right Bible verses to tell them. And then that leads to people who left the IFB. We feel like we have to know the correct thing to say, and we don't have the scripture verses that we've memorized to fall back on anymore. So it's a very panic-inducing situation <laughs> if we're asked for emotional support because it's like, I can't quote you scripture. What do I, how do I emotionally support you without quoting scripture to you? Or the <laughs> IFB idea. <laughs> if somebody is doubting their salvation. It's if somebody's having like emotional issues, it's probably because they're doubting their salvation. So you have to stick around in the conversation until they get to the point where they finally confess to you that they're doubting their salvation so you can do the sinner's prayer with them. I cannot tell you how many times this happened to me as a teenager. People would be venting to me about something and it would come up that they weren't sure if they were saved because it's the IFB and people doubt their salvation all the time. And then I would get to read them the verses and pray the prayer. And then I was the great friend who helped them make sure of their salvation. Wow. Like, I, I know that, like, a lot of women and, and femme people in general get, like, they end up as designated emotional support person. Mm-hmm. Or whatever, like, because for, for just, you know, whatever person in their life is going through it. But, man, it just seems the IFB takes it to the next level. But you have to, this is the Bible verses, man. Right. So, so like now, if you have, like, you text me when you're mad or sad about something sometimes, and it's really hard. Do you really ever get hard. the to reply to me with, well, Timothy 2, 8, like. <laughs> I can start doing that if you want. <laughs> oh, my God. Can you? Yes, of course I can. I I still have I'll thousands have to, of Bible verses memorized. I'll have to like if if it's if it stops being funny, then I'll like I'll tell you to cut it. Like if I'm going through it and you text me back just some like uh, 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 ecclesiastes. And, like, <laughs> and we need. I feel like we need a safe word for this. What's the safe word? The safe word's going to be uh, a pickle. Or, okay. or pineapple. Okay, or, that works because it's a Duggar thing. Okay, so if yeah. I text you scripture verses and you say something pickles about pickles, then I'll... Th- yes, pickles they are. are a Jewish thing. They're also a Duggar thing. It's cultural appropriation. <laughs> Wait, do they eat sweet, sweet pickles or, or sour pickles? I don't know. I don't like pickles, so I don't pay attention to it. Sweet, sweet pickles are goyish and are an abomination. I don't like any pickles. What does that make me? I, do you like sauerkraut? Yes. Okay, then you're cool. Okay. Yeah, I like other pickled things. <laughs> um, just generally don't like pickles. What about quick pickles? Yes, I'm, I'm okay with quick pickles. Okay. Okay, so, oh, we were talking about emotional support and texting you Bible verses. <laughs> because, yeah, because th- that was really hard to break for me because if you text me and you're having a difficult time with something. I legitimately is... do want you to do this. I legitimately will because it is so difficult for me not to be able to just tell you something 
Like I don't have an answer and not having an answer is so hard because I grew up in this, like there's an answer for everything. It's Jesus. (laughs) But like, because reasons that doesn't work exceptionally well when dealing with you. (laughs) No. (laughs) So like, so if you come from an upbringing where you're basically not allowed to have boundaries how do you go about learning to set them in in like the real world where people are now allowed to have, I guess, emotions that are not the emotion of I love Jesus? You have to learn first to check in with yourself. And this is extremely difficult because you've been trained to never listen to yourself. The heart is, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? So your own needs and wants are not important Uh, in honor, preferring one another. You're supposed to put other people in front of you. You are supposed to overlook your own needs, like physical, mental, emotional, spiritual needs, like they don't exist at all. And the, the other part of this puzzle, I think, is I don't know how to say this correctly, but hopefully it'll come through to the people, at least the people who already know about this, not considering your body to be your own property for you or not your own, but you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. This leads, sorry, you got me talking about quoting scripture. Um, (laughs) This leads to a major disconnection from your own body. And then there's also like modesty culture and purity culture. You are supposed to, I I take under my body and put it into subject. I take under my body and put it into subjection, I think is the scripture verse. You are not supposed to think about your body. You're not supposed to show off your body. You're not supposed to feel ownership over your own body. And you're disconnected from your mental needs and you're disconnected from your physical needs. Your own hunger or tiredness or busyness or pain becomes an abstract concept. It's not something that you're in tune with at all. Because you touch and see and feel and think about your own body as little as possible and your own needs as little as possible. So when I'm reading about the best way to feed toddlers, since I now have a toddler, I've been reading about teaching your kid to check in with their own body. Like, Do you feel hungry right now? Do you feel thirsty right now? Do you feel like you need to go to the bathroom right now? Are you warm? Are you cold? I had learned to be so dissociated from the body that I inhabit that I had to use the techniques that we use on toddlers to feel like I was inside my own body and not just like an observer. Wow. It is terrifying. It sucks. (laughs) Um, It leads to so much terrible like eating disorders and intimacy problems or on the other hand um people who are promiscuous in a way that doesn't make them happy and not in a safe and healthy way for them like it leads to so much because you stop feeling like okay this is something that i like this is something that i don't like it just becomes this is something that other people give me validation for yes and also because you do not you do not feel that your soul or your mind is connected to your body. Those are d- different things. Wow. That's... Mm. So you don't... It's just it's just a, a complete disconnect. And I had to learn to reconnect. And then I had to learn how to check in with myself mentally as well. So if someone is asking me for help with something or for emotional support, 
I had to learn to ask myself, is this something I can reasonably take on today? Do I have time to do this? Or is it going to prevent me from doing something that I need to do, like eating or sleeping or resting? Is this emotionally something I can handle today? Or is this going to put me in a bad place mentally? So once I got in touch with my mind and my own body to the point that I could see more clearly what I could or could not take on, then I had to learn how to verbalize boundaries. <laughs> and the way that the way that I did this, what really, really helped me when I was first learning how to make boundaries is by memorizing scripts. So I worked on phrases that I could apply to any situation where I needed to set a boundary. So I practiced saying things like, I'm not available after 10 on that day, or no, I'm not able to help with that. Or sure, I can help you with this, but, or yes, I can help between 2 and 4 p.m. on that day. So if somebody asks you to help them move this weekend, but you have to rest on Saturday afternoon because you're busy Sunday, and you know that your body can only handle so much, you might say, yes, I can help you move on Saturday morning. I can help you pack or move from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then after that, I have to go home. Or if somebody asks you for emotional support, but you cannot do it today mentally, you could say, I'm so glad you shared that with me. I'm really not in a good place to help. If you want to vent, you can keep texting me, but I can't, I might not be able to answer until tomorrow. So having, having those scripts and having that language that was ready to go that I could just apply to whatever situation I was in was so helpful for me because I felt like I could verb, like learning to verbalize, yes, I can do this. Here is the boundary I'm setting. Does it help to have um, an excuse lined up to get you out of something that you don't want to do? Or is it, or do you still deal with guilt from that? Or is that just something that you just don't even bother with? I, I think that that can be helpful short term for people who are just learning this concept. I don't feel like it's helpful long term. I think it's much healthier to not make a long term habit of that. And if I don't want to do something to just say no. Just say I'm not available. Like you mm. do not owe somebody an excuse for why you're not doing a thing that you don't want to do. And you don't have to be rude. You don't have to say, no, I'm not doing that because I don't want to. <laughs> it's, it is not rude to say I'm not available or I won't be able to do that. But thank you for asking me. That's like something that that's that sounds like that's a hurdle that you got. Like it being is able huge. To do that. Yeah. But I would prefer that people it was more helpful for me to learn to say, no, I'm not able to. Or thank you so much for asking me, but I'm not available that night. Or I would love to come to your birthday party, but I can only be there until 8 p.m. It was so much more helpful for me to just learn how to be honest. And like you don't owe people information about why you are or aren't doing a thing. And if you truly don't want to do a thing, you don't have to tell people I don't want to. But you also don't have to make up some kind of excuse. You can just you can just say no. And that was so, that was years and years and years of learning distilled into like three minutes. So I don't feel like people, I don't want people to feel bad if they're not at that point yet. It is okay to, if you feel like you have to offer an excuse, you're not a bad person if you, if you lie or offer an excuse to get out of something that you just don't want to do. But I encourage people to work past that when they're able to. There's also the concept of like wanting to do something in the first place. I still have a hard time telling the difference between what I want and what I don't want, but I feel like I should. So I really have to be 
very, I have to really think and process to determine what I do and do not want. So do you have to feel, do you feel like you pro, you have to think and process about that less yes. than you did when you first came out? Or like, do, do you feel like you have to check in with yourself about what you want less than you did when you first yeah, came it out? it gets easier. Um, this is a process. I, <clears throat> I feel like I'm still <clears throat> in the middle of this process, but I feel like I've made enough progress to help people get started in the right direction or a direction that has been helpful for me. When you, so when you got out of fundamentalism, what was one of the first things that you decided to do that you were really just like, I want this thing. I want to do this thing. This is for me. This isn't for anybody else. This is something that I want to do. I don't, I don't even really remember. It took me so long to get there. It might have been when I got my first tattoo, which. Oh, really? Yeah. And I think I got my first tattoo towards the end of 2015. But it was it was years after I got out. And even then, like the connection between I want to do it and I'm going to do it was so long. That string of questions that I had to ask was so long. Whereas now it's like, I want to do this thing. Is it safe? Is it feasible? Are there any easily foreseeable bad consequences? No. OK, I'm going to do it. But the the list of questions was still much longer. So I don't know, like what point in time that list got shorter and a first tattoo is a thing that you have to think about for a while anyway like now if you if you have more than a couple you're just like yeah why not i'll get another well, my one. first one is tiny my first one is the size of a nickel so it wasn't that oh, big really? yeah even my little triangle on my shoulder i don't know if you've even seen it i but it does like still a first tattoo you're just like i have i feel like this has to be like the the thing you know i didn't really feel that way i mine was mine is Tiny. It's a tiny, tiny equilateral triangle that it has the size of a nickel. So, did you go to a shop or you got a stick and poke? No, it was in a shop. But okay. I wasn't. I wasn't too concerned. I gave myself a stick and poke later, but it faded out, unfortunately. Yeah, stick and pokes are not it. They're not the way to go. Um, if you want longevity of of your body art, I know some people with like very high quality ones, but. <laughs> mine was not high quality and That's, it's probably a good thing that the only negative consequence i faced was that it faded away i feel like that's the equivalent of like somebody in portland opening up a gruel restaurant somebody's like oh it's artisanal gruel <laughs> it's a high quality stick well, and this poke. was like this was the- like at a, at a time when i did mine it was at a time in my life when i also had two ear piercings that were done at home i was in a diy phase <laughs> Yeah, but ear piercings are different. Well, like, my cartilage. Mean, th- like, Bo- both of my oh, cartilage piercings were done oh. by friends. Yeah, I went to. I went and I got my ear pierced uh, professionally, and thing, and they they did it. I'm just like, that's what I paid for. Like, I could have done that. What I, I could have just like asked. What you pay for is you know not getting saying? the infection because I am I'm tough, but I can't stick an earring into somebody. Both uh, both of my cartilage piercings, somebody else did. <laughs> Yeah, but you could just salt it. It'll be fine. You won't get infected. As okay, long as you, you use a clean... To, I, I, you, <laughs> anyway, this, this is a process. This has been an episode. Do you, uh, do you have anything you want to say before the end? Yeah, like this is this is a very long-term deal. And I know this one has been winding, but I feel like it has the potential to really be helpful. My My parting shot, I think, would be that this is what I'm talking about. If you hear me get fussy about 
the still fundy Duggar girls who are wearing pants or listening to contemporary worship music. This is what makes it infuriating for me because the amount of work to wear pants after not you're wearing pants your entire life, it's not small. That's difficult. That was difficult for a lot of us. It was a real big one for me. But the amount of work to detangle the kind of thing that we've been talking about today is so much bigger and so much more transformative. And I don't believe that they're doing this work. I think they're doing the amount of work where they can wear pants and then not even messing with everything else. And that's why I get my feathers ruffled when I see that. That's very valid. Thank you for uh, thank you for taking this us on this uh, as Bethany would from Girl Find would say journey mm-hmm. with you. <laughs> this is yeah. the kind of episode where I feel like we should do a follow up in two more years and see what else I've learned by then. Yeah, we we will. That'll be great. Okay. Um, speaking of learning new things, you know what our special programming for the end of summer, uh, uh, beginning of fall, so for like August, September, um, is going to be, we're going to be doing a special series of episodes on, um, my chest hurts, f- this coronavirus, don't get coronavirus kids. No, we're going to be doing a special uh, series of episodes on learning to do things. Yeah. We haven't decided what specifically the things that we're going to be learning to do or that we're going to be talking about learning to do yet are. Yeah, we're going to do a little little mini series. Um, and I guess that kind of continues the theme of this episode, too, because uh, this one is all about learning skills that we were never taught. Yeah, but you, that's not what we're talking about next week. Next week, what are we, we're talking about the plaths, right? Next, yeah. Next week, we are doing one of our most requested episodes. Uh, we are going to run down the Plath family from Welcome to Plathville and just all of the what the hell about this family. <laughs> the the good, the bad, and the weird. There is a lot of good, bad, and weird about this family as well that we really do need to talk about. Yeah, and I, I have, I've uh, been able to dig up some things that I haven't seen anybody else dig up yet, so I'm pretty excited about that. Anyway, if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, you can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. On today's Patreon episode, um, if you're a patron and you listen to our patron episode a couple like a month ago where we talked about occupying space, there's going to be an extended discussion of, of us maybe revisiting that topic a little bit. So that's super fun. That's going to be, I I got a lot out of that discussion. Um, But generally on Patreon, there's extended and uncensored versions of most of our episodes. You can purchase our merchandise on our threadless shop link to that is in the show notes. Um, Sadie, do you want to plug your social media? Sure, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell yeah Sadie, or on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. And you can follow the podcast on uh, Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast, on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. We hope that you guys have a good day. Bye bye. we
Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.